0: So I think this moment is an opportune time to ask, what do we want our banks to be? Do we want them to be trading desks that move money for hedge fund clients, or do we want them to power the growth of the real economy uh, by lending to entrepreneurs and lending to, to families? That may be a false choice because maybe J.P. Morgan and Bank of America can do both, but Given the current economic uncertainty and recent upheaval in the banking system, I think it would be appropriate to step back and ask whether the financial system as a whole is doing what we want it to do.
1: Welcome back to the Business & Society Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Karub from Michigan News. On today's episode, we welcome experts from the Ross School of Business and the Institute for Social Research to discuss the state of banking and finance. Earlier this year, we saw an interesting case study on banking, investment, and liquidity with the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. Since then, issues of inflation, high interest rates, and more have presented challenges for customers and businesses alike. To discuss the current state of banking, we have Jeremy Cress, assistant professor of business law at the Ross School of Business, fresh off an eight-month stint advising the Department of Justice on bank mergers. Jeremy, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Jeff. And we have joanne shu director of the surveys of consumers and a research associate professor at u of m's institute for social research she joined the university last year after having served as principal economist in the division of research and statistics at the federal reserve board of governors welcome to the business and society podcast joanne
2: it's a pleasure to be here
1: let's get started we'll open with a question for both of you in the overall state of our economy What key challenges are business and individuals facing from the banking and financial industries? Have the big storms passed or were we just in the eye of the storm? Joanne, we can start with you.
2: Absolutely. Um, So what we have noted um, over the last year or so is that consumers have been feeling very negative about the economy. Now, it was no surprise um, last summer with inflation reaching such historic highs. But even as inflation has started to ease up, consumers are still feeling pretty pessimistic. Um, At the same time, um, this relative pessimism hasn't quite passed through to expectations or to consumer behavior. Consumer spending remains very robust, um, and the major reason for that is that income expectations and incomes remain strong. We have a historically strong labor market. Um, so I think the main issue for consumers now continues to be the cost of living. And you know, on, on the banking and finance side, um, consumers have absolutely noted the increase in interest rates over the past year, um, and, and it is starting to weigh on them.
1: That's a good segue to you, Jeremy, The banking yeah, and finance. So I'll, I'll focus my comments on the, the
0: banking system specifically. And I, I'd say that the banking system has stabilized for the moment. Um, As you noted, Jeff, we had a period of volatility and uncertainty in March, April, after Silicon Valley Bank failed. Um, We ended up with two additional failures, Signature Bank and First Republic Bank. So collectively, we had three of the four largest bank failures in U.S. history, all within the span of, of six weeks. A question that I and many others had at the time was whether Silicon Valley Bank was more like Bear Stearns or was it more like Lehman Brothers? if you remember back 15 years ago in 2008, Bear Stearns collapsed in March of that year. But it wasn't until six months later, in September 2008, that Lehman Brothers failed and the financial crisis reached its apex. So drawing on that analogy, I think it's reasonable to ask whether there's still another shoe to drop now, six months after Silicon Valley Bank. As Joanne suggested, There's a number of continued challenges that banks are facing, which in turn affect businesses, individuals, and the broader economy. One, as Joanne said, is rising interest rates. Some banks were not well prepared for the Fed's recent rate hiking cycle. Rising rates have proved challenging for banks in several ways. It hurts net interest margins and profitability. Um, we've seen depositors pull their funding from banks to go to other banks that are offering higher rates or money market mutual funds or, or treasury securities. And as we saw with SVB, a number of banks are sitting on large portfolios of unrealized losses in their securities, which they may have to try to monetize and, and realize those losses if depositors continue fleeing. Uh, we also see pressures in commercial real estate with Uh, the prevalence of work from home, that's decreased demand for commercial real estate and deflated valuations. Uh, We have lots of commercial real estate loans coming due in the next several years that could be impaired. The Fed and the other banking agencies are uh, writing new capital rules. Uh, You may have heard of the Basel III endgame rules. That's created a lot of uncertainty in the banking system, which could curb credit availability. So what does this mean for businesses, individuals and in the broader economy? Uh, in light of this uncertainty and caution in the banking sector, I think it's plausible that credit conditions may continue to tighten. That means it could become more difficult for small businesses to get loans or potential homeowners to obtain a mortgage. And if we see a slowdown in borrowing, that could naturally have negative
1: consequences for the, the macroeconomy. That's great. And I think it leads well into the other question about your uh, recent eight-month stint at the DOJ. You worked uh, with the DOJ on reviewing their guidelines for bank mergers. I wondered if you could tell us a bit about what you learned, how mergers and bank antitrust law plays into our current situation? Sure. So
0: bank merger policy is highly relevant to the current moment and to ensuring that businesses and individuals retain access to affordable credit. I'm admittedly a little biased. Uh, Bank mergers are one of my areas of expertise. Like Joanne, I spent uh, some time at the Federal Reserve. As an attorney there, I worked on a lot of different bank mergers, uh, and since becoming an academic, I've researched bank merger oversight. Promoting competition has been a, a priority for the Biden administration. Two years ago uh, in 2021, the White House issued an executive order on competition directing different government agencies to uh, do different things to promote competition throughout the economy. One of the 72 provisions in that executive order directed the Department of Justice to work with the banking agencies, the Fed the comptroller of the currency, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, to develop a plan to revitalize bank merger oversight. Current bank merger guidelines were written in 1995. A lot has changed in banking since then. So the motivation for the executive order was we need a modernized approach to how we analyze bank mergers. For better or worse, there are not a lot of people who have, thought about strengthening and modernizing bank merger oversight, I am one of the lucky few. So about a year ago, the DOJ reached out to ask me if I would come lead the process of developing uh, new bank merger guidelines. Um, I was lucky that the administration at Ross was uh, very supportive. So I spent January through August of this year as counsel to the assistant attorney general for antitrust developing new bank merger policy. That project is not done. Uh, The new guidelines have not yet been released publicly. But the Assistant Attorney General gave a speech in June previewing a modernized approach to bank antitrust policy. Those 1995 guidelines uh, that are currently in place focus on local market deposit concentration uh, to assess whether a merger would substantially lessen competition. The Assistant Attorney General, uh, Jonathan Cantor, says that is too narrow on several dimensions. First, banks compete in many different ways, right? They compete based on fees, they compete based on interest rates, branch locations, product variety, customer service. Those are important aspects of competition that you might miss if you focus only on local market deposit concentration. Secondly, banks no longer compete solely in local markets. That may have been the case in the 1990s when many banks were limited by law to operating in a single state. But today we have trillion-dollar banks that compete all across the country and indeed all across the world. So the current system is perverse in that it more closely scrutinizes the merger of two small banks in the same local area than it does the merger of two mega banks. Uh, so Assistant Attorney General Cantor says in that June speech we need to change that. So why does bank merger policy matter for the current moment? Some industry observers and even prominent members of the Biden administration seem to believe that we can merge our way out of the problems in the banking sector. Officials like Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen publicly cheerleading for industry consolidation, uh, stronger banks buying weaker banks, notwithstanding the president's executive order encouraging stronger bank merger oversight. I'm of the belief that we cannot merge our way out of the current situation. Cheerleading for big bank mergers is short-sighted since it just kicks the financial stability problem down the road. And more importantly, resorting to consolidation at this moment ignores the many societal consequences that antitrust law was intended to prevent. Mergers could reduce competition, increase prices, reduce credit availability. So that's why I'm glad to see, and I was glad to play a part in DOJ reasserting itself in the bank merger space.
1: That's great. So it, it definitely is an eye-opening experience to be working, especially when you know it's an eight-month deal, <laughs> right? I
0: say it, it was wonderful. There were great parts about being back in government, the opportunity to do something that has real impact on on policy and on society. And there's some challenging parts of being in government as well that I got to experience for a time. And I'm happy to
1: be back at Ross for the fall. Back in academia. Joanne, from a consumer perspective, what sort of sentiment are you seeing around the banking industry and how does that differ from previous consumer views?
2: Watching consumer sentiment in the springtime, it was an incredibly interesting time because there was a bit of a divergence from a lot of the news coverage that we were seeing with all the turmoil around Silicon Valley Bank and Credit Suisse and other financial institutions um, and all the coverage of the risks. But, by and large, this wasn't really followed by most consumers. And so I would talk to a lot of financial reporters who would expect me to tell them that consumers are really devastated and really worried about these bank failures. But in fact, consumer sentiment and consumer views really didn't move a whole lot at all during this period. Um, we did see a little bit of declining trust in in banks, you know relative to credit unions. But you know, trust in banks has always been lower than, than trust in credit unions. And then I decided to look back historically, um, looking back at the time around Bear Stearns, around Lehman Brothers, and also back into the 80s, you know, we we've been running this survey since 1946. So, you know, we we have a lot of history to go back. So going back to the 80s and looking at the SNL loan crises and during the loan, right? Yeah. Exactly. So during each of these previous financial banking crises, consumer sentiment doesn't move much at all. Now, um, what was a little bit different this time was that we had several banks failing in a very short period of time. And with savings and loan, and, you know, it was a bunch of SNLs failing over a period of years, you know, Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers failed, you know, six months apart. So it was a little bit different this time in terms of the um, conundrum of multiple banks failing all at the same time. But even so, consumers just weren't that concerned about it. I, I can't really say if there was just an awareness of FDIC in insurance, um, if, if the insurance cap just didn't affect that many people. Um, but this also dovetails quite closely with, you know, conversations I'd have with my hairdresser or someone driving a cab, and none of them ever really had much to say about the banking crisis. I think it was something that was perceived to be, oh, it affects a small number of people. I'm not worried about it. So consumers in that sense are not waiting for another shoe to drop several months from now. And as I mentioned before, I think part of the reason for this is for them the problem of inflation is so top of mind that bank failures to them, they're just not that concerned. But I think one of the things that consumers are going to be increasingly concerned about going forward, it'll be really interesting to see what happens when the student loan repayment pause ends in just two weeks right um that's going to be taking a big chunk out of monthly budgets for a lot of families um and you know as i mentioned we've been seeing very robust consumer spending in spite of fairly negative views of the economy but student loan repayments could throw um, a bit of a wrench into that
1: right that's where the rubber meets the road that might be where you're starting to see that sentiment shift yeah or change This seems like a natural segue to uh, a little bit of a kitchen sink question here. So inflation has come down notably. It's still not at the Fed's goal. We've had failed banks, of course, but many larger banks have seen record highs in growth. We've achieved full employment recovery from the pandemic, but dangers lurk with the debt limit debate in Washington. That's a very active uh, live wire there right now. So depending on who you listen to, there are signs of promise and there are signs of peril. I'm going to pull out our business and society embossed magic wands here um, and hand them out. Uh, I want to know if you think polarization is blurring the view or if you think that it's better to look at the promise over the peril or look at the peril over the promise. Joanne, why don't you just have a take on that?
2: Absolutely. Um, so we're in a very interesting time right now where people feel so negative about the economy and yet so many indicators are quite strong. Um, I've gotten a lot of questions about, you know, why is there this disconnect? But I don't actually think there is a disconnect because for a lot of American families, you um, they still feel like they're struggling coming out of the pandemic. We don't feel like things are back to where they were in 2019, and they never will be. You know, we're, we've kind of entered a, a new normal in the economy. Um, but with respect to these historically strong labor markets right now, of course that's great for workers, people who are seeking jobs. But for a lot of consumers looking at what this means for the economy, even good news can be bad news, right? Like when we hear about the strong labor market, yes, we hear about workers easily being able to find jobs, but that also means that businesses who need to hire are struggling to find workers and consumers recognize the flip side of worker strength um of labor market strength and is it's that the businesses that they patronize um the services they're trying to acquire you know a lot of them are still suffering from from labor shortages and so consumers recognize there's two sides of the same coin even for strong points in in the economy and then to the issue about polarization political polarization absolutely blurs the view and blurs the view more now than it did 10, 15, years ago. Um, our survey for the last two administrations has consistently collected um, political party identification. And what we see is that consumers who belong to the party that um, holds the White House tends to have higher levels of sentiment, more favorable views of inflation than consumers whose political identification are with the other party. Right. And, and so we saw Republicans with more favorable sentiment than Democrats under Trump, and it flipped with Biden. But moderates are always in the middle. Mm-hmm. So, and moderates are spot on the national average, and they don't have any sort of discontinuity around an election. And so we've measured political identification at least once in administration, you know, in in previous presidential administrations, and this is what we've always seen that the moderates are always in the middle and the uh, partisan gap you know yes it used to be smaller and is much bigger now but all in all i don't think it really affects the the national mood um, necessarily because we always see moderates in the middle however i think it does contribute to this overall sense of anxiety not just over the economy but you know at the end of our survey we always ask people it's very clearly an economic survey but you know are there any questions you wish we asked and And we get a lot of political and social comments at at the end. People who want to talk about gun policy, immigration policy, they want to talk about foreign policy, They they want to talk about religion. And I think that's a reflection of that for people, everything is economic. And even uncertainty on the policy front or on the political front can bleed into their attitudes towards the economy.
1: And increasingly, maybe everything is getting political too. Yes. More so than you may have seen 10, 15, 20 years ago.
2: Absolutely, absolutely.
1: Jeremy, what do you think of all this?
0: I think it's certainly the case that banking policy has become more political uh, over the years. But I want to take a step back and note the irony in your question, Jeff, that big banks indeed saw record high profits throughout the pandemic at the same time when so many in society were suffering. I think that's reflective of the fact Big banks have become increasingly disconnected from the mainstream economy as they focus on activities like trading and wealth management and less on traditional banking, taking deposits, making mortgage loans, making car loans, making small business loans. So I think this moment is an opportune time to ask, what do we want our banks to be? Do we want them to be trading desks that move money for hedge fund clients, or do we want them to power the growth of the real economy uh, by lending to entrepreneurs and lending to, to families? That may be a false choice because maybe JP Morgan and Bank of America can do both, but given the current economic uncertainty and recent upheaval in the banking system, I think it would be appropriate to step back and ask whether the financial system as a whole is doing what we want it to do. This episode is sponsored by the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan. Through our podcast, you connect with the people and experiences that define the Ross way. Check out our other podcasts, such as Business Beyond Usual, an exploration of the full-time MBA experience, and Working for the
1: Weekend. A deep dive into the part-time MBA experience on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It seems like a good uh, time to maybe... um pull out the magic wand again, or maybe just uh, predict the prediction business is one neither of you want to get into and neither do I. But what do you think the future state of banking uh, looks like or could look like? Um, maybe piggybacking on what you just said about the false choice and it, it being both. Uh, Jeremy, what lessons can individuals and businesses learn from how the industry looks right now? Yeah. So as I think about the future of, of banking, Jeff, I think there's two big open
0: questions. First is, in the future, will businesses and, and individuals get financial services from banks or will they get financial services from non-banks, uh, including fintech companies? We've seen increasing uh, mortgage activity coming from non-bank mortgage companies like Rocket and Quicken, other shadow banks. We've certainly seen a migration of financial activity out of banks and into to non-banks. I do think there's good reason to believe that banks will continue to play a very important role in people's lives and in the U.S. economy. In particular, banks benefit from subsidized deposit insurance that Joanne referenced earlier. That gives them a lower cost of funds that non-banks can't access. So there's a built-in competitive advantage for for banks. But there's no denying that non-banks and fintechs in particular have already changed how we access financial services and will continue to do so going forward. So that's one big question. Uh, The second big question is, what will the U.S. banking sector look like going forward? Um, Right now, we've got about 4,400 banks uh, in the United States that fall into three tiers. We've got thousands of small, locally-based community banks. We've got dozens of regional banks like PNC and Truist, uh, U.S. Bank that lend to – Mid size companies. Uh, and then we've got the mega banks like JP Morgan, Bank of America, City, Wells Fargo. Academics and policymakers have raised a lot of concern, uh, especially since SVB, that we might be developing a, a barbell banking system. In other words, maybe the regional bank business model is. Not viable long term. Uh, and so we could end up with a banking system that just has a whole bunch of small community banks uh, and then a handful of gigantic mega banks with nothing in between. I think that would be a bad thing uh, if we go that direction. Regional banks like PNC and US Bank are really important for those mid sized companies that are too big to be serviced by your small local community bank. Uh, but J.P. Morgan and Bank of America also don't think it's worthwhile to uh, focus on those smaller companies when they could make – it's potentially more profitable for J.P. Morgan to make one large loan to a Fortune 500 company than it is to make uh, several smaller loans to, to mid-sized companies. Uh, so I think we need regulatory policy and merger policy that promotes the continuation of all three of those tiers – Uh, as we think about what the structure of the U.S. banking system will look like going forward.
1: Right on. Final thoughts, Joanne?
2: Yes, I think for for consumers, the increase in credit in in interest rates and the increasingly tightened credit conditions, um, you know, we're seeing across the board, but are going to hit consumers most acutely when they search for housing. And consumers have been really concerned about Sky high housing prices for, for quite a while, and, and even more so during the pandemic. And the increase in mortgage rates um, has, you know, even though from a historical perspective, uh, my parents like to remind me that uh, interest rates, mortgage rates were much higher in the 80s, um, they still feel unbearably high, especially when they see a lot of peers with 3%. Um, mortgage rates. So, you know, I think where this is going to come to play for consumers is, you know, are there going to be alternatives for them um, to find palatable interest rates for large purchases like mortgages or for starting a small business? Um, And, um, you know, of course, we know the tight interlink between housing markets and financial markets. Um, And so I think that is the thing to watch um, from the consumer side in the months ahead.
1: I like that old Andrew Tobias line, a luxury once sampled becomes a necessity. Yes. And I think that when it comes to interest rates, mortgage rates, you know, we don't think about what it was like for our parents. You know, we think about what it's like for us right now. Well, that's all for us here at Business and Society. I'd like to thank our guests, Jeremy Cress and Joanne Hsu for sharing their time and expertise. This episode was made in partnership with Michigan Ross and Michigan News. Make sure to check out the show notes for more details on topics, links to research and more. Thanks for listening to a Michigan Ross podcast. A special thank you to executive producers, Jeff Karub and JT Godfrey, audio engineering and editing by Jonah Brockman, And theme music, Lost Einsteins by Jeff Karub. Stay connected by following our podcasts on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. To learn more, read full-length articles of the podcasts at www.michiganross.umich.edu.